Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Coslin and Will Kimes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're starting our journey through Deuteronomy with Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, where Moses recounts the Israelites' own journey to the border of the Promised Land. And we're joined today by Dr. Paul House. Dr. Paul House is Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School here at Samford University. In fact... We are recording this episode with a live studio audience at Beeson. And this gives me an opportunity to do something that I've always wanted to do. Don't do, do it. Yet I'm Don't do it. Because this is the opportunity. Are you ready? Live studio audience. Hi. <laughs> Let's try another one, see how it works. I'm holding up signs for those of you listening on the podcast to see if the live studio audience can follow directions. And finally, that's all right. Thank you. Because you can tell we've got an active and engaged studio audience here at Beeson. Now, back to you, Dr. Paul House. He is the author or editor of 17 books, including commentaries on First and Second Kings, Daniel, Isaiah, and Lamentations. And then this book here, Old Testament Theology, published by IVP Academic, in which he walks through every book of the Old Testament and notes connections between them constantly and the deeper theological ideas within them. Highly recommend this if you want to get an understanding of the Old Testament. So we really could have asked Paul to come here and talk about any text in the Old Testament. He's done this extensive work. We're grateful that he has agreed to come and be with us to walk us through the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. And we hope that he'll come back and talk about other texts with us in later seasons. But the reason that... Did you get that commitment already? Uh, we should have got that <laughs> signed. Um, uh, we'll see how this one goes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, but the reason that we thought about him for Deuteronomy 1-4 to in particular uh, is that he wrote an article called Examining the Narratives of Old Testament Narrative an exploration in biblical theology, which was published in Westminster Theological Journal, in which he focuses in on Deuteronomy 1 to 4 as a kind of representative text of the role of narrative and narrative theology in the Old Testament. So we'll get to that article in a minute. And if you want to read it yourself, we'll put a link in our show notes. Great. Now, before we get to that article, Paul, uh, could you tell us first what drew you to studying the Old Testament in particular? And uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Beeson, uh, what drew you to come to teach Old Testament here at Beeson? Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I was a seminary student toward the uh, after the end of my first year. I felt led to pursue doctoral work to try to see if I could pursue doctoral work. That other people would have something to say about that. Um, I had by that time uh, done bachelor's degrees in biblical studies and English and a master's degree in English. I think I was probably uh, drawn more to the, the wider range of material in the Old Testament. I felt at the time that, they, that in the context where I was living, there were lots of good people uh, interested in and wanting to teach New Testament. Fewer interested at all in Old Testament, good or bad. And so I felt like there was a need which I that was greater in the Old Testament. I think it suited me. And so I 
have always been fascinated by the, the depth and importance and the diversity of the Old Testament. And what about Beeson? What attracted you to teaching Old Testament here? So I was already teaching when Beeson was found in 1988, and uh, I applied for a job here because I liked the idea of interdenominational serious scholarship forming people for ministry in a personal way. Um, Dr. George wisely hired Ken Matthews instead. <laughs> and so Ken just retired after, what, 35, you know, all but one year of Beeson's history. Uh, I was actually brought to Beeson to be associate dean in the first instance to supervise faculty and work with curriculum and so forth. And so after about six years of doing that, uh, I did transition to teaching Old Testament again full time. But Beeson itself had always been to me a kind of place where you could do serious uh, study, serious formation. Uh, and I came from, I taught at interdenominational places for years. And so I was, I was happy to be amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ of, of various uh, backgrounds. Great. Well, let's start thinking about Deuteronomy, and particularly Deuteronomy 1 to 4. How do you see these chapters fitting into Deuteronomy as a whole? Yeah, it's the, I guess the first question is how it fits into the first five books as, as a whole, mm -hmm. because it's going to pull together, uh, well, it mentions everything from creation to where they are now mm -hmm. uh, in the first four chapters, at least referencing briefly. And so uh, Deuteronomy uh, 1 to 4 is a, is a hinge passage which brings everything that's come before with it, mm -hmm. explaining it to a new generation of people. So that are about to embark on this, this extraordinarily important uh, adventure. And they are, um, as my friend Hunter Twitty says, there are, Moses is going to use memory as a way to encourage affection. Mm -hmm and responsibility. And so also then in the shape of the book, it sets forth the whole historical background to a, an existing relationship that will now be formed and reformed again for the future. So it's really this hinge passage um, that you you need to know. So in a, in a seminary context too, if you're interested in knowing how to preach, this is a good model. If you're interested in learning how to teach, this is an ex, Moses is a really good teacher. And so I think there's lots of reasons why you would read this at this stage, but it helps to have absorbed as much as you can of the first four books. The way that you've described it, it's almost as if Deuteronomy 1 to 4 is the Deuteronomy of Deuteronomy, in the sense that Deuteronomy yeah. itself summarizes the first four books of the Pentateuch, setting the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. And so Deuteronomy 1 to 4 within Deuteronomy is summarizing the point up to that, setting the stage for the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. Right, because I think one, one way of looking at this is that the covenant goes on, or yeah. the covenants that have been established are going on. And some would call this covenant renewal. I don't, you could say it's just a covenant bridge. You now need to know what you've entered into. This is who you are and this is how it goes. And so, you know, the covenant form of the book, uh, the, the ancient covenants were made between people who already knew one another and had a history. And this is explaining to the people. And in, in an interesting way, incorporating people who did not experience this into the experience. Mm. 
as we would do, uh, an example in Christian church, I guess, would be every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're entering, in, entering into that whole history, including a particular night and time that you never saw. But you were there. You will go on. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, rhetorical approach, yeah. among other things. Yeah. Now, what for you in these first four chapters is the most difficult thing or most challenging thing for you to understand? Uh, it... it taxes me to keep track of all the things he mentions that have already happened and try to put them back in order. Um, I think it's because I, I'm a reader and I'm so used to being able to refer back and find. So as I was rereading this passage the last three or four days to get mm -hmm. ready for this, uh, like this morning I read it over again. And so I, it, it was helping me refresh my memory mm. <laughs> of things. And I thought, well, he's telling that in a little bit different way, or, but just to keep it all straight. Yep. from about Exodus 15 till here, particularly the bits about, uh, well, I'll be honest, I don't teach, <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Numbers as often as I used to. So I've, I've, I've gotten a little bit blurry on the stog and Bashan and <clears throat> this, you know, the, the stuff basically from Numbers 15 to 36. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have to kind of refresh. Right. Well, and that's the purpose of this passage, in yeah. a sense, right? And to do that for any reader of the Bible. Now, one of the things that potentially makes it a little different, difficult to keep on top of all this is that Moses is not exactly giving us a reprise of this history in order. So maybe you could, to get us started, walk us through what happens in these four chapters. Give us an overview of these chapters and what happens here. It starts with this introduction which tells you where they are and brings you up to date on that and where they're poised to be in chapter one but he goes back um, to the story of, of Mount Horeb and Sinai and at that point he says now you stayed long enough at the mountain that's one six I won't go through every verse don't worry but it's time to go that becomes the part of the story he wants to focus on. See, it's not, he's not saying, now let me from the beginning tell you all that has happened. So they actually know the story better than I do. And so he said, all right, this piece of it, I want to talk about that. We started here and we went here. We appointed leaders who eventually didn't turn out to be so great. Um, and we made our way, and by verses 19 and fall, you refused to go into the promised land. Verse 26, you rebelled, which is a strong, strong word in this. You didn't forget, you rebelled. Mm -hmm. You didn't wander, you rebelled. Um, and even in verse 27, chapter 1, you said the Lord hated us. He hasn't chosen us. He doesn't like, he doesn't want us. He brought us out here to kill us. The breach of relationship leads to some of these things. They, it sounds like Genesis 3. They're trusting the wrong things about God. And so he takes them through chapter 1 in that whole story to say, that is how we got here. And that is the sequence of disobedience that he wants to lay out. So he's already saying, this is how we got here, and we want no part of that. Chapter 2 is interesting to me because he, he now says, um, let's talk about the journey. 
that's given to you in bullet form in Numbers 33. Now let's talk about this journey. Let's talk about what we passed by and we could not have. So that we would not stop where we are, perhaps. You can't have Mount Seir. You can't have Esau's stuff. You can't have Ammon's stuff, his land and this sort of thing. So not Moab in chapter 2. It reminds me of Adam seeing all the animals. You know, it's not this, not this. But eventually, two and a half tribes want to stop in uh, the land of the Valley of Arnon, chapter 2, verse 25. But it also shows us that all of Abraham's descendants or his, his relatives have their land too. Israel has a promised land, but it's not the whole world. It's a particular uh, place. Chapter 2, verses 26 and on, he, he reminds of it in, in the book of Numbers. They had these early victories. God was raising up this new generation who would indeed go to the promised land. And so as, we, as we, you come on through, to, through chapter 3, it's this, here was your journey told in a, in a s second way. Here's where we went and, all we, and now we're at this land. Now let me tell you another aspect of it. In that journey, not this, not this, you are heading here. And now, as you come to chapter 4, which I, I think the whole chapter is, this, is what we usually think of as a sermon. Mm -hmm. Here are the implications. Here's how we live. Here are the benefits of this. Here are the warnings I can give you. That's usually chapter 4 we would typically say is a sermon. The rest of it isn't. Mm -hmm. But I think there are traditions um, in our preaching that, that take more seriously. Uh, Dr. James Earl Massey used to talk about preaching as recital. Mm -hmm. Are we telling the story with the punch that comes with what the story's about? So it's like he says, well, you've got this great big story. I can now pick any piece of it as a point of emphasis. So in the, in the Old Testament, the desert, as you know, is positive in the sense, in some senses, negative in others, and it depends on which piece of it that story they're going to choose to emphasize. Right. I mean, it reminds me, with my students here at Sanford, I have them read Psalm 105 and then Psalm 106, which is looking at a similar stage of Israel's history, but putting a different spin on it by emphasizing different features of how God's relationship with his people plays out. That, that's right. If you start at 104, you can go from creation to the end of what you just said. Yeah, right. That's true. So the three of them together, and, and eventually that's what, um, in just kind of a, as a sidelight in, in Moses's bringing this first four chapters and conclusions. Remember, has there ever been, since God created the world, a nation that he has delivered, carried through the, uh, through the wilderness, given his teachings to so they can live? If you'll keep these things, you'll be a wise people before all these others. So it's, it's this great climax, but he starts really, it sounds like a throwaway line, but from creation now to where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what uh, Psalm 104, 106 does so nicely, yeah. Now we have in, uh, it's in the first chapter, where we're told about uh, Israel's rebellion, right, and refusal to enter into the land mm -hmm. uh, because they're afraid of the inhabitants of the land. And this is a retelling of 
an account that we have in Numbers 13 to 14. Uh, but this retelling of that is a little bit different, right, than the story in Numbers 13 to 14. Uh, we have a number of changes, for instance, uh, or differences. Uh, Moses is not uh, said to us to intervene on behalf of the people as one instance. Another mm -hmm. one is that he, he's, uh, t he's told here that he won't enter the land as a result. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the significance of these differences? Yeah, first of all, I'll say that I want to clarify. 132 says the ultimate reason that they did not go on the land is they did not believe the Lord your God. Mm -hmm. And that's also what uh, God says to Moses, I think, in Numbers 14. How long will they not believe in me? Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a, this relational matter should be above all now. God's proven himself to them. Mm -hmm. Um. But yes, then because they don't believe, they are going to have all sorts of uh, fears and so forth. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the one that I find interesting is where Moses said, you know, on your account, he leaves out the whole bit of what he did, <laughs> which is a very human thing to do, isn't it? I, I, uh, he doesn't contradict or deny what Numbers 13. He, he does not choose to dwell there. <laughs> sure. Um, However, we have both. We have both uh, in the text. But he, when he doesn't emphasize one thirty-seven, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account. Um, that seems like a little bit of uh, leaving. Something's been left out. Yes, mm -hmm. he passes over that. But for what purpose? He wants to highlight that Joshua is now the one they need to follow. Mm-hmm. So it has this effect of saying, when I look to Joshua, look to, you know, um, I'm, I'm, the, I'm past. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think, and this is also part of the story that he tells from Horeb to here with the emphasis on what you did wrong. There's not a lot of we in this, like there is in Nehemiah and Ezra and Daniel, where, where they talk about where, where those three leaders did nothing wrong, really, but they say, we did this. Mm -hmm. So this is a very directive, but I, to me, it's, a point, it's just a point of emphasis based on which piece of the story he tells for what purpose. Mm -hmm. right. So leaving out the intercession that he does on behalf of the people in Numbers 13 and 14, which is... Uh, my personal favorite part of that story in Numbers 13 yeah. and 14, uh, you're suggesting could be partly modesty on Moses' part, but could it also contribute to this point he's trying to make about the people's failure? Because the, you could imagine mm -hmm. them jumping to the conclusion, well, Moses intervened on our behalf before and was successful, so we can just rely on him to do it again. And maybe that's why he leaves it out? I think that's fine. See, I, I think our problem is we, we once we forget that he's he's talking to a particular group of people at a particular point in time and preaching in that sense, uh, we're more noticeable to say, well, he left this out, he left this out, kind of like we've kind of learned not to do that with the Gospels mm -hmm. better than we have with Deuteronomy um, because we, we understand more of the, uh, of the pattern. Or in, in Acts 7, Acts 13, and Acts 17, you have, you have three long sermons that are kind of like this, they all start in different places. Mm -hmm. And so, it, it, but I think you're, you're right to say when something's left out, 
that's what I need to say. Wait a minute. Right. <laughs> Why? Is it humility? Is it what you said? So I think rather than just say, well, it's left out, I wonder what the error is. The point is, if it's left out, what's going on and why? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think I think that's, I would encourage that kind of reading for other people. So, yeah. Yeah. So in your article that we mentioned before, you split these chapters into four, uh, into three movements. Uh, and the first movement we've just talked about here, chapter one, and you've, you've walked us through how these movements fit together. The second movement is actually chapters two and three, which mm-hmm. talk about victories in the desert and Moses's exclusion from the promised land. And then we'll look at movement three, which is chapter four in a minute here. So moving into chapters two and three, This section begins with a travel account of sorts. So the people pass through Seir, or another name for it is Edom, then they go to Moab, and then Mm -hmm. to Ammon. And the Lord tells them not to engage with those people. And I think it's interesting with the point that you just made, maybe because he doesn't want them to settle in those places. Uh, But then they come to the region of the Amorites, the lands of King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan. And there God gives the people victory, mm-hmm. and several Israelite tribes are then given their land. So what do we learn from this passage? You pointed us to a few things there, but this is a, you know, a long and somewhat convoluted passage. What's the point of including this in this historical prologue here? Just because you have a promised land, don't make too much of that mm. on its own. There are other people who have promised lands. Uh-huh. And it's, did not bring the Syrians from someplace. I think it's an Amos. These other, so there's also... Uh, on this humility issue, don't don't make too much that that you have the promised land. So uh, I I think that's true. I'm just amazed from from about Numbers 15 on how God builds this whole next generation. So before they ever go into this larger project, God, Joshua, and all they have they have success before they go into the bigger project. So to me, it's like God's bringing this generation along a little bit at a time, just as he brought the other generation on with the, with the Exodus. He's bringing them on with these early victories, showing who he is, developing this bigger plan. So um, I, I hope English readers, uh, our English readers will now say, or our Bible readers will, will compare this more to whatever travel-oriented novel they like because it's an old, old literary thing. I'm going to take you on a geographical journey to teach you something and to be how I'm going to shape the plot, right. whether it's Huckleberry Finn or, or lesser works. Now, after these two, these two victories over the two kings, right, the, uh, the defeat of King Sihon and the defeat of King Og. The guy with the uh, big bed, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of these names, too, you know, you feel like you're in the Lord of the Rings or something like that. <laughs> this one's particularly <laughs> <decent> that <laughs> But um, we then turn to Moses in uh, 323 to 28. In 323, verses 23 through 28, and Moses says to the Lord in verses 24 to 25, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your might. What God in heaven or on earth can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? Let me cross over to see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and the Lebanon. But then Moses continues and he says this, the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not heed me. The Lord said to me, enough from you. Never speak to me of this matter again. 
That's in verse 26. Mm -hmm. And he's only allowed to look into the land, Mm -hmm. not enter into it. What is going on here? Why is God so angry with Moses? And why isn't Moses allowed to enter into the promised land? I mean, come on. This is is the guy who led the people. He took, you know, the burden of the Israelites upon himself, you know. um, Right. What you got to do, donate a (laughs) lot. Right. Right. What's going on? Well, I, I never liked this part of the story. <laughs> you have to go back to Numbers 13 and 14 okay. and do a serious uh, reading. And then Numbers 20, where the Moses account is. And I take very seriously um, a couple of things. And I think this, this also comes up in the story of King Saul, by the way, those of you who are prone to think through and make comparisons. So that Moses does not just disobey God, which is true of Saul. Um, But something very similar, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. To me, that's the problem. Is one of one of failure to lift up God. You'll also notice um, um, chapter twenty and verse ten. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of the rock? Hmm. So in the search for the answer that I don't want to find, it is he took credit for God's miracle, something he's never done before. Mm. He doesn't put make uh, lift up. God is holy. Now what I strikes me about Moses is he does what King Saul won't do. He prepares the next generation to do what God's called them to do. He pitch, I mean, he gets Joshua ready. He leads the people after he won't get what he wants most, right. which is to finish the job. Right. So I, I'm really struck with Moses' character here. And it does, again, I, I just find these parallels with Saul a good way for me to be able to think through because you also eventually ask, what Saul do that David didn't do? Mm-hmm. The answer is take credit for what God does, hmm. which th- then I have to ask myself, how serious a matter is that in the Bible? Very serious. But that's my that's my best that's my best answer. But it doesn't mean that I'm not in sympathy. Right. Yeah. I w- I wish he could go on. Right. Part, yeah. Part part of me wonders. Um, and I'm just reflecting out loud here as a measly New Testament guy, <laughs> is that um, is Moses, so Moses disobeys, and are you supposed to take from that if you're an Israelite, right? You're reading this. You're like, good grief. If, Moses, if, if even Moses, the leader, could not escape in some ways the curses of the covenant because he doesn't get to enter into the land, then we better get our acts together and not, and not disobey also. But it could also have the opposite effect. It's like, good grief if Moses couldn't do it. I mean, <laughs> how in the world try? are we going to yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that there might be a connection there in the way that the text runs, because immediately after this 
section that we're looking at, we get into the third movement, which is, starts with chapter 4. And the next thing that Moses says in 4.1 is, So now, Israel, give heed to the statutes and ordinances that I'm teaching you to observe, so that you may live to enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Right. So you could see the connection yeah. right after he's not allowed to enter. He's saying, right. now you've got to obey these commands so that you can enter. Right. And rather than the approach that you took, I would say they should be able to feel massively benefited that they get something Moses isn't going mm-hmm. to get. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's the other thing, <laughs> which is, because I, I keep thinking, I, Moses talked to God face to face, and his face glowed. That's pretty big stuff. Moses was on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's mm-hmm. pretty, you know, pretty big. So anytime I would get something that Moses didn't get, mm-hmm. that's both humbling and exciting. Right. <laughs> but, yes, I, yeah. but I also think it, Maybe we're supposed to take all these angles on it and consider and talk because the Bible is very contextual. It, it, it encourages thinking. If you don't, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you don't want to think, you won't be a Christian. Right. So I, I, I'm not saying this as opposed to that. Sure. Then yeah. you just you, you surround it and think it through. Yeah. Right. The Bible is made to encourage podcasts. Yes. Like, right? We're supposed to sit around and have these kind of discussions right. about right. what it might mean. I'm glad we're in chapter 4. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? I'm, I, I'm teaching you so you can live. Um, and don't add to the Word. Don't take away from it. It's sufficient. It's, it's, what, you're, it's what you need. Um... And he, he it, it just goes on in this vein in, in verse 4, but you who held fast to the Lord are all alive today. Mm-hmm. Verse 4. It, it's cleaving language like in, in Genesis and marriage. See, I've taught you. Isn't this great? I've taught you. Now you know. Yeah. Keep them. Do them. Verse 6, this will be wisdom and understanding the sight of all people. Surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people goes on in verse 7. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it? God is in our midst um, and so forth. But it, it requires, verse 9, take care. Keep your soul diligently lest you forget. Keep your eyes, ears open. Keep learning. Keep walking. And it's almost like now like what I am, old person talking to younger people. You're going to need this. <laughs> this is what Moses tells them. You're going to need all this, and you never know when or at what point. So keep your eyes and ears open. This is, and, and don't forget. Don't when you come into the land and things get better. When you're a full professor, when you've been promoted, when you've been tenured, when you've. Uh, don't forget. Now, Moses st- began his historical summary with the people leaving Horeb, right, back in mm-hmm. chapter 1. Yeah. And now he circles all the way back to the people standing at the mountain, mm-hmm. receiving the commandments from the Lord. Yeah. Why is the story being told in such a roundabout way, you think? Because they're about to go to their journeys. Their journey from now is compared to the journey... This is about the third journey in it. From from Egypt to Sinai, that went pretty well. From Sinai to here, a little ragged. (laughs) (laughs) An 11-day journey that took 40 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, 
you're about to start again. And he, he just keeps putting it to them. Commit. Hmm. Commit. And so that the moment at Horeb is, or Sinai, the other name for that mountain, that's the moment in which they have this, where they have this opportunity to commit, and they do commit then. Right. And so he's reminding them of the commitments that they made. Yes, and to keep doing it. Don't, don't forget which these people, which you know you seem to have done before. Uh, keep going. Consistency in the covenant is a hallmark of Deuteronomy. And if we read Joshua, this this generation did well in their consistency of their commitment. Right. I mean, sometimes I hear people describe um, ancient views of history as circular, as opposed to a kind of modern Western view of history, which progresses on a straight line. And I do wonder if the way that this his history is told here, where it starts with Horeb, circles back to Horeb, is suggesting something of the circular nature of we're always circling back to this commitment to obey God. Yeah, because I think instead of just a straight line or just a circle, it's, it's like this, and it loops, <laughs> and then it goes forward, and then because some things that have been will always recur. But yeah, a new beginning can be exciting or it can be negative. Oh, we need a new beginning. Mm -hmm. You're on, you're fairly launched. It's one of Bonhoeffer's great points about Psalm 119, verse 1 and 2. He says, thank goodness we're not always stuck in new beginnings. We get to walk. <laughs> we get to go be on the way. Right. And so, but yes, they're... A journey is a powerful image, isn't it? We still use it all the time. And this is, uh, it's so powerful because it's so on the ground, true to life and not abstract. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Tolkien before, right? So mm -hmm. the journey is crucial to Tolkien. Right. Uh, right. So let's look at 425 to 31, which is also a surprising passage here because after calling the people to faithful obedience, Moses, Moses doesn't express much confidence in the people's ability to actually obey. So the NRSV translates verses 25 to 26. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Now, most English translations do a similar kind of thing here. They make this a contingent statement, but there's really no if in the Hebrew, and it's not clear that Moses doesn't actually expect the people to disobey. And if you read the whole passage, it certainly seems like he seems to be expecting this disobedience that will lead to exile. Mm -hmm. Now, one way that scholars will attempt to explain this is to say, well, Deuteronomy is written from a later historical perspective, and it's looking back at an exile that already occurred after the people have indeed disobeyed. But if we read it in the context here in Deuteronomy, what is the purpose of this somewhat depressing uh, start to the rest of the book where Moses doesn't seem to show that much confidence in the people's ability to obey what he's about to go into chapter after chapter of instructing them to obey. Um, I think chapter 30 verses 1 to 10, which is a parallel passage, does the same thing. Moses knew people. 
Yeah, the Bible says to boot, he's a prophet. So he, he interprets the word of God. He also knows he can, he can anticipate the future. So yes, that's, that's depressing. But the good news is in verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. Hmm. Uh, if, and it can all, as you well know, it can also be when just as easily as if in the Hebrew. When you search after him with all your heart, with all of your soul. When all you're in tribulation, all these things come upon you, in the, and it late, latter just means later days, you will return to the Lord and obey his voice. See, this is very good news. Yeah. The, and that's same in chapter 30, which, of course, Jeremiah picks up on big time, same language. So the bad news is, yes, we're going to, eventually that's the route you're going to take. That can't kill the covenant. God makes no covenants he doesn't cover. He's already figured this out, and this Here's the good news. This is why someone like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel could pray as they did. We know that God has promised this. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, over time, Moses has seen what could happen with people. Because the same generation that followed into the desert, which Hosea celebrates, you follow, you know, Jeremiah 2 to 6, you follow me like a bride into the desert is a wonderful thing. And then things didn't go so well. So, but that's not the end. That's what I keep. Not the end, and not right. not the end for any believer today. Right. So there's the sense in which even if you go and disobey everything I'm about to instruct you, when it occurs, yes, that's not the end of this story. Mm. There's hope even after that. Yeah, and and it will happen. Now, the the, the sobering thing to me is that it God always has people. He said to them, He's going to do this. The question is, are you going to participate? In other words. Um, Good news is God's going to always raise up a people, always have a people. Bad news is if I, if I make decisions in my life that preclude that in my life, I don't get to be part of that. Right. Which is the striking thing about Deuteronomy, actually, that it switches back and forth between the singular you and the plural you in terms of the addressee throughout yeah. the book. And it doesn't even seem, there doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme and reason to it, but maybe that's the reason behind it, so that both individual and collective are addressed throughout that's that's what i think and i think it's what uh again we have ronnie would know better i would but didn't that somewhat what paul means when he says these things were written down for us mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> us being the next the next reader the next mm-hmm. person who'd be held accountable now in deuteronomy 4 verses 32 to 40 here we have the big conclusion to moses's first sermon in deuteronomy Um, Now, in your Old Testament theology, you argue that Moses is making a case for monotheism here, Mm -hmm. right? So, for instance, when Moses says in verse 35, the Lord is God, besides him there is no other, you comment that a clearer monotheistic statement could hardly be made. Mm -hmm. Can you flesh out your case for how you see Moses arguing for monotheism in in these verses? There is no other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> let me let me uh let me i i, I don't <laughs> jeffrey tigge who's in the uh torah commentary hmm. does a better job than i do of arguing the linguistics and old testament theology of monotheism jewish scholar i take this at face value there are other texts that no no other gods before me which would, would lend themselves more to the discussion of well do you believe there are other this text is not one of these this is an exclusive relationship. And so it means 
There, there's no discussion of other gods here. Um, they're not to consider another god when they make this commit this commitment. But their parents had been raised in polytheism. So one of the big points the Old Testament has to make is, in the beginning, God created. So as far as they're concerned, it's like, it's like saying when you get married, you have to act as if there are no other candidates for spousehood. This, this is it. Right. <laughs> but I, I actually think the Bible in other places, uh, what, Isaiah 44, 9 to 20, Jeremiah 10, there's several of those. They're going to say, if you're going to push, if you're going to push us to making a point, these other gods don't exist. They're not deities of the type that Yahweh is. Right. Yeah. And if we look here, Moses does more than just a bare assertion that mm -hmm. there yeah. is no other. Right. He provides evidence that he points to. So verse 32, he says, For ask now about former ages, long before your own, ever since the day that God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of heaven to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened or has its like ever been heard of? So he's pointing to God as creator. Mm -hmm. Isaiah does a similar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then he doesn't stop there. Right? Has any people ever heard the voice of a God speaking out of fire as you have heard and lived? So God's revelation to mm -hmm. his people is something that mm -hmm. is, that's distinct. And then he goes on to talk about what he's been talking about in these first four chapters, which is God's relationship with his people in history. Uh, which is distinct, right? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? Uh, and then with displays of power, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. So there's that, he's, he's trying to build his case here. Right. Uh, in a number of ways. Now, I guess one way you could push back is say, well, throughout building his case, he's saying, has any other God done this? Right, Which right. maybe sure. is working with an assumption that there could be other gods out there. They're just not as good as this God. Exactly. This is the, this is, that Israel's God is incomparable. But right. whether is this an assertion that he is the only God who exists? I think that's where the some of the uh, dispute amongst Old Testament scholars happens on passages like this. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, I think so. I also think that they assume because other nations believed in many gods, these people did. So, so I see. It's kind of a totalizing assumption to make okay. about another human being. But as far as we know, to summarize what Will said, um, we're not aware of any other ancient Near Eastern country that said their god made a covenant with them. Because it, quite apart from making God be too strong there, that makes him look too weak. Mm, why would God? Why would a deity need to enter into it? Yeah, right. obligate himself to sure us, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's rather in the literature, it's a rather distinctive mm. um, historical reality that. But I also think it's today we need to sh we need to show respect for other people's beliefs, if not be dismissive and that that sort of thing, but. I don't think it holds logically to, to say that because other people believed in many gods, probably necessarily they did. The, the language of the text eventually, John Bright put it this way, eventually the Old Testament undeifies all the deities. God does everything that you say a god would do. What else would they? In the ancient world, too, if you didn't do anything, you didn't exist. So in the sense that we're talking about. But again, I, I respect the people who hold 
that opinion, but I think what God's trying to say is in a world in which doing is how you know anybody is there, mm. what have they done? The kind of argument he's making here is not really a philosophical right. argument, right? right? It's a theological argument that's built on the various ways that God has revealed himself in, in reality. And this is a point that, if you want to read further, uh, Nathan McDonald makes sure. in his book on Deuteronomy and the invention of monotheism, I think that's the, the subtitle. And his point is just that even that idea of monotheism, we may be imposing a category from later in history onto our reading of Deuteronomy in a way that doesn't quite fit with the way that things uh, are playing out here. And you know how dangerous I think it is to impose later categories onto earlier texts. And of course, henotheism... And that's really, that's not doing the same thing, is it? Right, exactly. I mean, it is doing the same thing, <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Right, yeah, yeah. We, so. All of these categories that we apply to yeah. the text are categories we apply to the text. But, but Paul likes the, you <clears throat> like the category monotheism, right? Yes. And I think it's um, because these other gods, and I say this respectfully, I don't, they, sure. they, they don't have existential substance. And if you want to talk about demons and other powers, that's not a god. Because again, the status of creator, who made it and who runs it, gets to be called God in this, in, this, in this account. Now, I also want to make one other point, which is this text is written to believers or assumed believers, not to unbelievers. So it's not written so that I might convince you there's only one God. Mm -hmm. That argument has to be made some other way. But it's, it's one thing that has united... Christians, Jewish people, and in some ways uh, Muslims is to talk about. There, there is a common belief in one God. Mm -hmm. How you define that God and who he is becomes very problematic. Right. <laughs> but again, I don't think it's a, a unique thing to Christianity. So when I was, when I was looking for a centering theme to, to carry through, and the most astounding thing the Old Testament says is that on the subject of creation, not many gods, one God did it all. Uh, is the most astounding thing it could have said, and it's it's similar to the Greco-Roman world. I mean, say that there, and it's also um, astounding. But it's to believers, not to it's to instruct believers here. We're not we are not trying to now convince people. So yeah, and at the very least, and I think this is in this text. Yeah, I think there's some, something that people on all sides of this debate would agree upon reading Deuteronomy for is that. Whatever beliefs there may be about the existence or non-existence mm -hmm. of other gods, what Moses is calling the people of Israel to is a life as if those gods don't exist, right? right? There is no other, which he repeats right. twice, verse 35 right. and verse 39. As far as you're concerned, right. there's no other god. It's exclusive worship and devotion to Israel's god. Right. I yeah. don't think that there can be any debate about that. And it, it does ground this covenant that's mm -hmm. being made here right. between God and his people. And as far as... In, um, Paul mentioned marriage, right? That's the same kind of idea, mm -hmm. right? For you, there is no mm -hmm. other, uh, and that commitment is... Though there is polygamy in the ancient world, anyway. The, the, well, okay, so that'd be a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Okay, well, opening a can of worms right as I was talking, thanks to conclusion here. Uh, let's conclude, though, with our the final question we like to ask our guests, which is, within um, the world of biblical studies, there is such thing as the blurb. I'm looking at some blurbs here on the back of... 
Paul's Old Testament theology. He's got one from Tripper Longman and one from Elmer Martins. I won't embarrass him by reading them uh, here in front of him about just how fantastic this book is. But we ask our guests to write their own blurb so they don't have to write them out, but give us a blurb, some kind of recommendation of something that might be helpful to our listeners. And it could be a book, but it could be anything else. It could be a, a movie that you enjoy or a TV show or a life hack that you've discovered. So do you have a blurb for us? A recommendation. I think it's a good day if I've been able to read uh, some of my literary mentors, which is how I take this. If I if I've read Bonhoeffer um, of certain portions, it's it's been a it's been a good day. Um, if I've read um, uh, Wendell Berry, it's been a good day. If I've read uh, a portion of Joseph Ratzinger, uh, it's been a good day. The, what they have in common is a seriousness to Jesus Christ. Uh, at, the, at, at, at the heart of who they are and what they do. And then from there, they diverge depending on what their background has been. And I heard so. <laughs> that Wendell Berry actually mentions you in his most recent book. I have heard that, yes. <laughs> have you read this? Do you, what does he say? Uh, well, I, I, we were discussing, um, and he says there, I'm a friend of his, which is true. So I, um, we were discussing whether or not Genesis... Uh, makes work a curse, mm -hmm. and what's the meaning of uh, sweat of the face? Okay. So yeah, I um, I I don't believe that the Bible gives any aid or comfort to a destruction of creation or to industrialism as appropriate Christian way of life. And I can imagine Wendell Berry appreciating <laughs> that view. Yeah, well, he helped me come. He helped me come to it. It's a it's a compelling book, four hundred and some pages long. And Wendell's eighty eight. This is probably his last sustained uh, prose book. Wow. So, well, Paula, thanks for taking the time and bringing with you your expertise to walk us through the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. It's been a delight. And thank you to our listeners, both live, thanks for coming, and to you who are listening, um, wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, we would appreciate the five-star rating. We, we appreciate five stars, not four stars. You and know. you don't have to listen to our podcast and no other. You're welcome to listen to other podcasts as much as you like. That's true. Um, and you may, you know, with that five stars, enter into the promised land. It's, it's very possible that, <laughs> that Will and I may help you get there, if that were even possible. Live long in the land. <laughs> in podcast land. All right, well, thank you, Paul, and thank you for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Thank you.